Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Okay, on this episode, uh, I am talking with Clancy Martin. Uh, Clancy is an acclaimed author of the novel How to Sell. He's also uh, written numerous books on philosophy. He's a Guggenheim Fellow. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, and many other outlets. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. He is the survivor of more than 10 suicide attempts and also um, a recovering alcoholic. And he is the author of the latest book, How Not to Kill Yourself, A Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. Now, I will uh, say upfront, um, this is in some ways a conversation that is pretty heavy, uh, much like his book, which I think is fabulous. Um, it is not a book necessarily that uh, people could just pick up and start reading. Um, I've heard many wonderful things about the book that for many folks, it's been very helpful because of how raw and honest it is. But in some parts of the book, it is pretty explicit. As I just mentioned, he's uh, had numerous suicide attempts. Um, thankfully, none of them successful. And he is um, still thriving at the moment. And uh, we had a, a wonderful conversation. Um, but I want to say, so just as a, as a kind of, uh, if you will, warning, uh, advisory warning, trigger warning, whatever, whatever makes sense for people here. Uh, if you are not the most comfortable hearing about suicide or themes of death, um, I would encourage you to uh, probably not listen to this episode. Um, I would never want to inadvertently put someone in a, in a space that uh, is pretty dark. Um, so if you have a tough time uh, hearing these types of themes, um, you know, you can, you can click off now and, and um, you know, wait for, wait for the next conversation. But uh, if, if you are all good, um, I would encourage you to listen and to really just kind of, you know, hear his, his story. Um, I should also mention, we mentioned the conversation, but I'll mention it here. Um, as of a couple of years ago, I remember when it came out, at least here in the United States, um, the suicide and crisis, uh, lifeline hotline is uh, 988. And if, uh, you are, um, in a dark place and you're feeling suicidal, you can call that number anytime, 24 hours. I have, I think it's, uh, English and Spanish. Someone is there to pick up. Um, it's a, it's a great resource. And as we mentioned in the conversation, a lot of the times when people are feeling pretty, pretty dark, um, they just got to talk and they just got to get their thoughts and their feelings out. And so that's a, a very nice way to, to reach out to somebody. Uh, so if you ever, um, feeling that way, or if you know someone that's feeling that way, that's a good kind of initial first pass. And then of course, trying to get linked up with some type of treatment thereafter. Um, I also want to say, so I've, I've had a previous conversation about suicide before a couple of years ago on the podcast. Um, that conversation was a tough conversation, but really helpful. It talks a lot about some of the research and it talks about um, some of the stats and the numbers and the data. Um, this conversation, I intentionally didn't want to do that just so I didn't want to, um, you know, kind of repeat kind of the same content. But it's a similar theme, but it's a lot more personal. And again, talking to to Clancy, who 
has had experiences with suicidal ideation and attempts and has written about it. And um, I thought it would be helpful to kind of take a more personal uh, angle uh, on, on the topic of suicide. Uh, one of the things we spend time on is the very tricky way of how we sh- you know, should push to not make talking about suicide taboo, but also don't want to give it too much attention where people are um, very casual about talking about it. So important conversation. Um, I think Clancy and myself try to be as um, sensitive as possible uh, about the topic because it is a sensitive topic. We start the conversation by talking about why the he wrote the book in such a way that was so honest and so raw, um, very personal, why he decided to write the book that way. We talk about why suicide is a taboo topic. Uh, we discuss why gratitude for life isn't always enough for folks that are suicidal and what are some of the practical ways of helping folks when they feel suicidal. We talk about the very closeness of death all the time in, in one sense. Um, no one's promised tomorrow, of course. And so living living life uh, very much to the fullest uh, every every day. We talk about the freedom and burden of living. We talk about this notion of, you know, is suicide a coward's way out? Uh, we talk about some of those themes. We talk about uh, assisted suicide. We talk about mental health treatment, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and therapy overall, and uh, many more topics. I have to say, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed this conversation, meaning I enjoyed how honest Clancy was. Obviously, I don't enjoy talking about suicide, um, but I, I was very happy that he was willing to come on and, and talk about it. and the very personal way in which he did. And um, obviously I, I greatly enjoy talking with him. And I, my biggest hope is that, you know, people that are feeling uh, in a dark place or feeling suicidal, uh, that they can reach out uh, to someone, whether that's the 988 hotline or um, a provider or even someone close to them that they can, they can say, Hey, I'm feeling this way. Um, so, uh, he's made himself available, uh, as well. And people reach out to him and, and talk to them about their kind of difficulties, which is very kind. And so I hope that this conversation is uh, helpful. That's the intention of it. And, um, again, the 988 hotline is there for folks and, uh, trying to get linked up with treatment thereafter for those that are in need is, is also there. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. It's also on YouTube. Uh, You can subscribe and follow and and share widely. And now I bring you Clancy Martin. I'm here with Clancy uh, Martin. Clancy, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm greatly looking forward to uh, talking with you. Thank you so much, Xavier. Really happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you have written a uh, really, really important book. Uh, the title is How Not to Kill Yourself, a Portrait of the Suicidal Mind. Uh, I'll be honest, it's a heavy book <laughs> for listeners out there. It's, a, it's, it's heavy, but I think super necessary, super important. Uh, when I was preparing for this, I was uh, talking with a few people that had read it, and they found it very, very, very helpful. Um, and I think the rawness and the honesty is really what kind of uh, grabs you and says, wow, like this is a perspective we need to hear. So I'm excited to talk to you all about it. 
Um, before we do, just kind of give your uh, snapshot of uh, your background um, and uh, all the relevant stuff professionally, and then uh, what you're currently up to. Sure, I'm uh, I'm a philosophy professor. I was in the jewelry business for years with my little brother and my older brother, and then um, I just found that to be an incredibly uh, for me a self-destructive place to be. So I got out of it, became uh, uh, the philosophy professor and um, sometime writer that I am now. And uh, I'm a father of five children. I've been married three times. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I never really had as much problem with drug addiction, but alcohol was, for me, was a drug that I just really had a hard time with. And... um, and as I uh, describe myself, a recovering suicide addict. Yeah, um, I think it's. Uh, I think it, we'll probably get into it. There's obviously a kind of overlap of things that go on with you know substance use and with some mental health and suicidality. So I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that. I guess the the first question I have it's kind of a preamble, but why did you decide to to write this book and write it in the way you did? Um, very very personal. Um, you know, very, in some places, explicit. And, you know, did you have any worries or fears about that? Or it felt kind of like the right thing to do and how to do it? And you said, well, you know, here we are, let's go with it. (laughs) Yeah, well, what happened was, um, some years ago, I had been invited to write an essay for um, a bit one of the big magazines. And um, I said I was going to be writing this essay about my time in psychiatric hospitals and uh, which I have a lot of things to say about and most of them negative, I'm sorry to say. And um, as I was writing it, the editors, one of the editor's loved ones attempted suicide. And he said to me, I notice that every time you've been in the psychiatric hospital, it's been for the same reason that uh, you tried to kill yourself. And I said, yeah, that's, that is indeed true. And uh, he said, well, maybe you should focus a little bit more on that because I think people need to hear about that. And, you know, he had just gone through this experience with someone he cared about deeply. So he wanted to learn more, I think, of how how it felt to be that way. So I wrote that essay and then I started having people email me from all over the world saying that they were Googling how to kill themselves and read my essay and decided not to do it. And as a writer and as a philosophy professor, you know, as much as you do try to be of what little help you can, you never expect that sort of thing. You never expect that your writing might actually save someone's life. It's just not the way you think. And, um, at least in my own case. And so as I got more and more of these and and I established more and more of these relationships with people who were just like me and sometimes much more difficult circumstances than my own, um, I found that, you know, I thought, well, I only told a little slice of the story in that essay. I should tell the whole story. And the reason I told it the way that I did Xavier, is that I don't know about your experience from a clinical perspective, but from my experience as a writer, um, the only way that I can be of any help to people is if I am just as nakedly honest as I can possibly be. And then it strikes some kind of a chord in the other person that you are willing to be vulnerable in that way. And suddenly there is this connection of intimacy that is the sort of thing that makes you feel like, okay, yeah, 
it, it gives some meaning to life. And it's that meaning and that feeling of being like, okay, there's someone out there like me that, um, that helps me to keep on going and that I found helps other people to going on, go keep on going. So I had to just try to be as truthful, as honest, and as um, absolutely nakedly vulnerable as I could possibly be if I wanted this book to be useful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where you succeed, where others maybe have not succeeded in the fact that exactly what you're saying, people that are really hurting and they're at a really uh, tough space where they feel there's 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 no exit here, right? And, and and the only way is is you know if I if I take myself out, you know that's a that's a very very tough place for a lot of people, and folks in that space can really kind of see through bullshit. Right. They kind of see when, when people talk down to them or they talk in kind of the lingo or clinical speak or when it's just kind of empty platitudes. And to really connect with somebody in that way, you 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 need almost another person in that space to uh, exemplify their own vulnerabilities. And which is a, a really tough thing, especially if you've had, you know, a long history of of some pretty dark moments. And so. Um, you know, I think that that's what makes it so powerful, but I, I guess, uh, you know, so, so in that way, I think, I, you know, I'm grateful that you, you have this out there and that's a, that's a huge thing that will, will always forever be there. Even when, you know, you're not here, hopefully for, you know, that's a very, very far away away, you know, years later, but, um, this will always be there and that will always be, be helpful for people. So that's, that's very, very powerful to, to, to think about it in that way. Um, I guess, why do you think we have still this taboo about talking about suicide now there's some things about well you don't want to if someone's in a depressive very serious depressive uh, episode or or even if it's not clinical they're just in a really dark place and or they have some serious trauma or they have some kind of substance use or whatever and you know talking about it's just titillating them right it's just kind of giving encouraging them right you know that's kind of been dis disproven but but then some people will say, well, you know, you, you got to do it in the right space. You know, this shouldn't be just blasted on social media that someone's saying this and what should I do or, but we shouldn't hide it either. So how do you think we carefully kind of navigate through that minefield of, of talking about suicidality that's respectful and careful, but also honest where, where people can feel they can be vulnerable about something and not shamed or or anything like that? Yeah, it's two fantastic questions. You know, the first thing, the taboo and the stigma, as I'm sure you know, the World Health Organization lists, uh, says that about 10% of um, the world population suffers from um, chronic suicidal ideation. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. And they list as the number one obstacle to combating um, the pandemic that we have, that is suicide. Uh, the number one obstacle is stigma and taboo. So we've got to talk about it. But then you're right to ask the next question about how do we do so safely? Because we know about these two effects. There's the Werther effect, where if you a famous person 
dies by suicide and we sensationalize it, we all know the suicide rate goes up. And that's why we, especially people in the media, people with jobs like you have to be very careful about how we talk about it. You know, we just just today heard this terrible news about Sinead O'Connor. They're being very careful about how they're talking about it. Um, we know that her son died by suicide about a year ago, and, and probably we're going to get some really sad news, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um But uh, so we have to be careful not to sensationalize it. Otherwise, the suicide rate will go up and people who shouldn't have died will die. Otherwise, wouldn't have died will die. There's another effect called the Papageno effect, which I'm sure you also have heard about um, from Mozart's uh, opera, The Magic Flute, where the character Papageno, by getting the opportunity to talk to his friends about his suicidal feelings, manages to see that, no, he shouldn't take his own life, that he should go on living. And um, the Papageno effect is as well documented, if not as well known, as the Werther effect. And how it works is just when we tell the whole story in the way that you're trying to tell the whole story, we talk about um, people who made previous attempts and failed, how it's tied up with very often with depression, with anxiety, with um, sometimes issues of addiction, how... um, the shame and the taboo are unnecessary and there are people all around us feeling this way, but they're just hiding it um, from each other. And that a lot of suicide, a lot of people make suicide attempts. Um, They, they survive their suicide attempts and then um, they go on to live, you know, um, happy lives, you know, to all of us, all of us are suffering. You know, the Buddha was right when he said life is suffering. We're all suffering together. The, the the first noble truth is that life is suffering. And as my wife, Amy, says, the reason she loves that first noble truth so much is that it's the, there's no velvet rope. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Trust me, you're suffering. Life <laughs> is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if we tell these stories about people who attempt suicide in the right way, it saves lives. The suicide rates go down. Mm-hmm. So um, shows like this are exactly how we overcome the stigma and taboo. And we get people to feel confident about talking to each other. And the single best medicine for suicide is just talking to another human being. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine is behind the one of the leading people behind 988, the National Suicide and oh, nice. Mental Health um, Helpline that I know you talked about in the opening and um, John told me uh, when I asked him, what do you say to suicide survivors? He said, the best thing, what I always say, and the best thing you can tell them is that now you have a superpower and that superpower is you can talk to another suicidal person in a way that no one else can. You can be completely intimate with that person. You can save a life. And I think all of us, if we're just willing to be honest about how, the various ways in which we are suffering and may or may not have had these kinds of thoughts um, can save the lives of people who are, you know, going through a moment of crisis because these moments of crises do pass. Mm-hmm. You know, suicidal thoughts are like any other thoughts. They come and they go. Yeah, I think that's re- that's really, really important. And and yet I, I find that for many people, it's it's hard just to 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 get to that point of of sharing it because almost as if you if you share about just the thoughts or in some cases a plan, then it becomes more real. It's not just in your head and you're you're 
talking about it with another person and then there's like well something has to be done and you know most people i think understand that you know if you tell another person you know especially if you're telling someone even remotely close to type of mental health provider you know there's a there's a there's a duty that's there and, and there will be consequences yeah, yeah a lot a lot of folks know that um i i want to ask this question that i was kind of like i was thinking about and i was sort of wrestling with it um when i was when i was reading the book which is that I, I I thought about plenty of uh, clinical experiences I've had and and uh, personal experiences and dealing with folks that are, are suicidal and say, telling somebody that gratitude for living or that you know life's you know in some ways it can be so great and there's all this potential and you don't know and all these things and that that's not always enough sometimes to prevent people from saying, yeah, but I, I still don't want to be here. And so I mean, how is, if you could chat about that and also these, these two thoughts you, you say in the beginning of, you know, sometimes people say, you know, I wish I'm dead, but then also I'm glad my suicides, you know, failed. They didn't work. And there's almost this, this cognitive distance there. So what, what's the case for, for not killing oneself? And is the case for not killing yourself the case for life? Or as we just said, you know, life is suffering. So it's like, well, obviously, I don't I want to get out of suffering. I want to how do you wrestle with these kinds of ideas? Yeah. yeah. These great questions. Um I think, in fact, you know, oftentimes asking someone when they are um, in a rough spot, a real rough patch, including asking yourself when you're in a real, telling yourself when you're in a real rough patch, you know, look how much you have to be grateful for. Look at all the people who depend on you. Look at, you know, all the people around you who love you. That does not make things better. In fact, just the opposite. It makes you feel worse because now you feel ashamed of having the thought of wanting to kill yourself. And I, suicidal thinking can get so circular and so paradoxical that you can start to think it's a proof of the fact that the people you love would be better off without you, Mm -hmm. that you are selfish enough to kill yourself despite the fact that they love you. So (laughs) you convince yourself that you are so, that you are such a loathsome person that that uh, that you would think of killing yourself, to, even though you know they love you, is a proof that those people shouldn't have you around. I mean, that's how circular and how self-punishing it gets. And telling people thing, you know, like, oh, but you have all these reasons to live. Oh, this very often will just make a person feel worse. Now, how do we? So, two things. How do we talk to someone when? Um, they are in such a space. And then also, how do we reconcile this deeper question about like, why go on living given this, um, how difficult it often is, and particularly for those people who find it so difficult? Well, how um, we should talk to someone who is in such a space is honestly, just to keep them talking, keep them talking about what's going on with them, you know, let them air all of their problems, let them tell you why they're suffering, what's going on with them. Ideally, if you can also you if you can, if you've got a person reaching out to you, um, get that person walking, get them out of the physical space that they're in, because probably the physical space is having a negative effect on them as well. It's, you know, a kind of 
easing of the pressure will be accomplished both by talking to you and by moving out of the space that they're in. That'll open the blinders for them a little bit. It'll it'll alleviate a little bit of the pain. Then another thing is remind them that they don't have to kill themselves today. They've got this power to kill themselves. They can always do it tomorrow. So why not wait a day? You know, rather than doing it today, just wait one more day. You can always do it tomorrow. And that's a very old argument, um, first advanced uh, by the Stoics um, a couple thousand years ago. But it, it, I always use it. It still works today. I also always tell people, you know, in this day when you're just going to wait one more day before doing it, um, sometime when you're out walking, give someone an unexpected smile. Uh, Anybody, doesn't matter who it is, just smile at somebody unexpectedly. And the reason that I always do that and the reason that I found that it really works and people are glad that I gave them that advice when they report back is that you remember that you actually have this power to create a little bit of good in the world. You know, that that smile would not have existed if it were not for you. And you might have totally changed somebody's day for the better just by that one simple little smile. And you did that because you are still around. But anyway, um, now, as far as this, um, uh, so don't don't try to solve their problems. Don't try to remind them that all they have to live for, just keep them keep them talking. Now, if it's you and you're not able to reach out to somebody, there's a way of keeping yourself talking, which is like, just what I do it all the time. I just like whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm feeling, I'll like jot it down in the notes in my phone. Or if I I don't have the strength to jot it down in the notes in my phone, I'll just like record into my phone how I'm feeling or walk, ideally get walking and record into my phone. This is how I'm feeling right now. And some of my most um, upsetting work has come out of those recordings, you know, because like the thoughts that were going through my head, but just airing them made them less oppressive, made them feel less inevitable, less, less punishing. And then the other thing is that, you know, um, why keep, keep on going? Well, when we think about the fact that we are suffering, we should um try not to forget that we're all suffering together you know um and the fact that we're all suffering together gives us the opportunity to to take care of each other and but also to be taken care of by each other and so you know don't try to be a hero or anything just people will help you if you let them if you and and you can help other people you can help other people just by letting them help you you know i don't know how many times i've been having like this day where i was right on the precipice and then someone emailed me and said oh i i didn't kill myself because of something that you've written and you know can we talk a little bit or i just read your book and it helped me can we talk a little bit and then we go back and forth and now we both feel better you know we both feel like life is going on what is worth living. I I think that it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. You know, it doesn't. Um, uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh says something very helpful. The great Buddhist philosopher Thich Nhat Hanh says something very helpful about this too. He says, you know, you're going to have these suffering feelings, just like you're going to have these happy feelings. When these feelings of intense suffering come, 
um, rather than being afraid of them or pushing them away, hold on to them. Don't chase them away. Treat them like they're little babies. They need to be taken care of, those, those terrified and terrifying thoughts. Let them, you know, you don't have to cling to them, but let them be there and say, oh, you know, I, I welcome you terrifying thought. And then when you welcome that terrifying thought, it's like, you know, that old wisdom about having a nightmare where you turn and face the thing you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. It, it kind of dissipates. And then you realize, oh, you know, oh, you can, well, you can breathe again a little bit. Once you can breathe again a little bit, then you can notice that um, your experience, just your very ordinary experience is not as claustrophobic as panicky as frightening as it as you momentarily were thinking that it might be and then um and then a little bit of feeling for 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 living can can come back to you i think mm. yeah I, th I think that's it's very very helpful to to have a kind of understanding of the dynamics between the the thoughts and and where you're at i want to ask um you you mentioned something uh that Sometimes suicide or suicidality is is not just an impulse, but sometimes it's a there's a relationship with suicide or suicidal thoughts over time. And you know, this is a personal question, so if you don't want to answer it, it's totally fine. But um, you, you've 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 stated in the book that you've tried to to take your own life many times, and, many many times, yeah. Um. Hmm. Do you, for you now at this point in your life, how do you see your relationship with with suicide and 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 knowing that, that my goodness, you know, I, I've I've had all of these attempts and I've been in some dark, really dark places, really tough relationships, tough experiences, and I've done so much work and I'm still here. Does that ever? at this point in your life <laughs> tire you and make you exhausted or does it give you some little extra vitality of my goodness all of, if 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 it would have been on the sixth attempt i would have missed all of these other things that i've had since then and my goodness i would i, I would have missed out so much or or is it more of a a burden or or a kind of exhaustion that you carry with you i guess what's personally what's your kind of relationship with it at this point in your life yeah. Well, in the past, there certainly have been many times where I felt burdened by the fact that um, I had tried, especially immediately after, that I had tried and made an attempt and that the attempt had not succeeded. I mean, particularly when you wake up in a hospital and you realize, oh, yeah, I was, can you remember what you had, you had just been making this attempt? And then Sometimes it's just, you know, the feeling of fatigue and hopelessness is really overwhelming. And that's, I think, why, of course, as maybe if people don't know, they should know, um, someone who's made an attempt is at their most vulnerable the first month or two after they've been released from the hospital. And they're usually released from the hospital very quickly and, and not at all a good, you know, they want to get out of there, of course. Um, they're, they're very unpleasant places to be, most of them. But um mm -hmm. Uh, you really have to stay in close contact with that person after they first get out of the hospital. Um, 
Now I have to tell you, and I, you know, I feel a little embarrassed admitting this and I want to knock on wood as I admit it. And it's, it's, it's been a little bit weird because it makes me sometimes feel like a little bit of imposter syndrome, but in the past three, four, five months since this, since this book has come out and, um, since I'd been kind of like put the book to rest, you know, it's been extremely strange. like, suicide the desire to kill myself i think for the first time in my life is almost maybe entirely gone and it's been this enormous fantastic relief i think it's even safe to say there are days some days that go by when i don't think of killing myself which had never been true in all of you know 55 years, I cannot remember a day that I did not want to kill myself until the past few months, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so... What, what is what is that experience like for you? That, that has to feel like such a novel experience, no? It is. Yeah, it's a, it's a really novel and it's a slightly frightening experience. Uh, because right, I right. don't want it to go away. I, I don't want to get too attached to it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too comfortable with it. Um, and I, you know, I sort of don't want to let my guard down, but, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, it's, it is, it's, it's very, very, and as I say, it makes me feel like a little bit of an imposter because I, now I'm talking about this stuff and when, when suddenly I'm, I'm feeling a lot less vulnerable than I've ever felt before to this particular, um, style of thinking. And I don't know why, um, I think maybe some of it is facing some things about myself on the page and through the process of writing the book, which there was one point in writing the book when I thought that I wasn't going to be able to go on because it had put me into such a, such a terrible depression that I thought, okay, I can't keep on writing, but I kept going and I came out of it. Thank goodness. And I changed some of my things about habits that I have, you know, I changed my exercise routine. I changed my diet a little. I did some things that I, I tinkered with some things that I call my, you know, psychological or spiritual nutrition that I know I have to keep an eye on. And everyone who wrestles with depression, anxiety, and especially suicidal thinking should, should think about their psychological nutrition in that way and how best to care for themselves so that they can tinker with it if necessary. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a strange place to be. And now I feel so incredibly grateful that all of my past attempts have failed. I mean, so incredibly, incredibly fortunate, just so incredibly lucky. Honestly, I feel so lucky. Um, but, and I also feel that it would just be too disastrous now if I were, uh, you know, after having written this book and all these people that I've connected with over email and I just don't feel like I, but anyway, happily the, 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 the thinking has changed. So I hope it stays that way. Mm. Uh, this, this is very, very, very powerful. I was, I was curious when I was reading about where, where, where you were at on things and I, it makes me, you know, very, very, you know, happy that that you feel you have such a uh, a, a, a period of 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 respite and and genuine uh, happiness that you don't have those thoughts or those feelings. I think that that's. I mean, I, I don't know what that experience is like in the same way that you do, and and that's uh, you know I can tell that that's a that that's that's such a that novel experience is so edifying, which you know is very very happy to hear. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I have to say, even though, again, as as I say, when I'm, you know, I, I have lots and lots of people I email or text with every day who are really going through a rough spot. So it sometimes makes me feel a little like mm-hmm. a little. Well, but that's but that's but I think that's the that's just it is is that you know you 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 have you know so many experiences and you're you're in a space to to really you know connect with people and help them sometimes when we're too too low with our own mood and thoughts we're not able to be accessible for other people sometimes that's true yeah and yeah, sometimes are just too down and out our yeah. limits are, are is sometimes yeah. it's really tough i i want to kind of pull back a little bit on on the uh kind of personal and, and a little bit more on the abstract here so i'll, I'll uh self-disclose uh some things i, I haven't I haven't said this publicly so uh here it goes um i think about i think about dying uh every day um but not suicide um i want to hold on as much as this life is suffering i want to hold on to every second i have on this planet um and mostly it's i've told this to people in my personal life um i i'm not afraid of dying per se i'm afraid of not enough time and that's more horrifying for me because there's so many experiences I don't have that I want to have, which is usually around um, learning new things, meeting new people, learning about in the, in these different types of experiences, um, writing, giving back, uh, connecting with with people, pushing myself, challenging myself. And I know I don't, I will not have enough time to do all those things. And, and part of the motivation I have for staying healthy and active and doing all these things is because I, I want as much time as I can, as, you know, especially for my mind. Um, and I realize that connection there, but I, I, I don't worry about it. I don't, I don't have like an anxiety per se, but I do think about at some point I won't be here, not because of my own choice. Um, I'm, that's not in my, in my, uh, kind of, uh, lexicon of sorts. I've never been really suicidal. But, you know, uh, illness, uh, tragedy, um, these things take people. I see it around my life all the time. And I'm so grateful every morning I, I wake up and I say, I woke up today. You know, I, I made it through the night of sleep uh, when, I, when, I, when I go places and I come back. And, and I think sometimes I, that kind of, I feel, I don't say, I wouldn't say plagued by it, but it does kind of hover over my shoulder of, you never know when it's your last day. And, 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 and I've had so many tragedies in my personal life that have, you know, really, you know, alerted me to that. And I think about when I'm not here, not again for hour, I, I want to enjoy my day. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think about it for hours on end, but I think about it at least once a day, at least. And I think it's, it's tough. It's tough to think about it that way. And I, and I, when I was reading the book, I thought about it and it was, I feel like sometimes people are, they have this kind of the inverse issue where it's this freedom of living. So I just don't want to do this anymore. And the the terror of waking up the next day and of having to still live with this pain or this suffering, I feel it really, it's like flipped, right? I'm, you know, and how do you, how do you think about that? This, 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 
this this kind of freedom of living, kind of the Kierkegaard thing, right? This angst, right, that we have, and you know, Heidegger talked about it too in different ways, and and knowing that, yep, life sucks, life's going to be suffering. There's a lot of potential value you can make out of it too, but that too many options or too much freedom can give people a lot of um, dread or anxiety. And sometimes for people when they're dealing with, you know, chronic depression or, or, or other big things, you know, uh, substance use or, and abuse, uh, tragedies or trauma in their own life, that next day with all those options is too much. How do you, how do you kind of, what are your thoughts of how navigating them? Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, the great 19th century Buddhist philosopher, Patro Rinpoche, said... The best practice is thinking of death every day. Waking, he said, the best practice is waking up every morning and thinking exactly as you do. Um, my God, I didn't die in the night. I have another, now I have another day. And, th- and thinking of death every day. He tells this wonderful story about these um, pundits who come to him for teaching. And one of the pundits has memorized all of the teachings. And he says, oh, that's very good. And then another one of the pundits spends all of his time meditating. And he says, oh, yes, that's very good. And another one of the pundits spends all of his time making offerings. And he says, yes, that's very good. And then and then they say, but this other pundit, all he does is he constantly thinks of death. All he does is think of death. And he says, oh, this is excellent. This is like, you should all go learn from him. And um, this is the best practice. Nietzsche, of course, famously yeah. says this. Yeah. And Kierkegaard and Heidegger both agree that, um, uh, you know, uh, Heidegger stole this from Kierkegaard. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kierkegaard, the thought of death, there's nothing to make us... Um, aware of the urgency of the project of life, like the actual thought of death, which so many people live in self-deception about. Now, a lot of people I talk to talk about the distinction between um, thinking of death and the craving for self-annihilation. Mm-hmm. And when Martin Luther King and Thich Nhat Hanh were having a discussion about writing letters to each other about Buddhist monks who were burning themselves alive in protest of the Vietnamese war. And Martin Luther King was saying, you know, in the Christian tradition, we don't believe in this because this is suicide and this is considered to be wrong. And much of the stigma against suicide um, uh, comes, of course, from the Judeo-Christian tradition and people not realizing that that has a very specific source in the writings of St. Augustine and one particular sect who mm-hmm. were killing themselves a lot in order so that they could get to heaven faster and that this is not actually um, part of the a necessary part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. But anyway, that's a more scholarly thing. And anyway, so uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote back to Martin Luther King and he said, listen, um, suicide is not has nothing to do with death. Suicide has to do with the desire for self-annihilation. Mm-hmm. And these monks um, are are killing themselves, yes, but that's not suicide. Their motivation is not to, that they, they're going to eliminate themselves in some way. Um, they just are dying is the best way they have of making this particular kind of speech heard by the world that has nothing to do with the desire to annihilate themselves um to you know they don't think they're going to annihilate themselves by by killing themselves 
and it's a helpful distinction, I think, because um, the person who wants to take her or his own life wants to do so because she or he wants to stop being herself, you know, or stop being himself. That's what's driving her crazy is, is herself or himself, you know, um, and death is merely instrumental. It's just like, I've tried all these other ways of extinguishing myself. You know, I've tried all alcohol. I've tried all these other, none of these, eventually all of them stopped working or none of them ever really did it. So I think there is this one way and they could be completely mistaken about that, you know, and it might be that that is not going to work at all. And, you know, this is um, Hamlet's famous speech about suicide when he's thinking about it. And he says, you know, he's talking about, oh, what if it's the ease of sleep? And then he says, yeah, uh, but there, there's the rub to sleep for chance to dream. You know, maybe maybe it's not going to do the trick at all. Uh, maybe, in fact, it's going to actually make matters much worse. So this is something that should get every, give every suicide person pause i think it, it might not accomplish the goal that you think it's going to accomplish but as for the question of thinking of death every day i think um almost all the great philosophers with the exception of spinoza who says a free man should never think of death um uh all the great philosophers pretty much agree that thinking of death at least once a day is a really good idea because it will make you realize how lucky you are to have the day that you have and just to acknowledge the fact that you don't know you could have and one more hour for all we know or you may have 40 50 more years ahead of you you know I was I was told by a great palmist on a cliff on, in the in the Indian state of Kerala, that as long as I didn't eat chicken, I would live to be more than 100 years old. And I thought <laughs> as he as he told me this, I thought, you know, huh, so that means any future suicide attempts are going to fail too. <laughs> 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 you know, unless I really start hitting KFC hard. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> very funny. <laughs> um, real quick, what do you think about this, this notion of uh, we, we can tackle maybe two topics topics here kind of simultaneously. Some people have have said, and and I think at a certain point I used to believe this as well. And then as I read more and listened more, I, I don't really think that way. That people will say that suicide is a coward's way out, right? It's the cowardly way to to to, to die. And you know, you can talk about your thoughts about that, and then you know, these ideas of um you know assisted suicide for people that are geriatric you know that they're right. you know that there's a you know kind of this suffering that's endless really physically mentally the whole thing and 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 you know it's really just belaboring the point and we just speed it along because you're 92 and you know whatever but um what do you think about this idea of of the coward's way out the people's ideas about that and and maybe some of the ideas about assisted suicide sure so the the cowardly and the selfish uh, these are the two most common um complaints levied against people who attempt suicide or who die by suicide um that this this person was a coward or selfish or both so a few things i want to say the first thing is uh i want to say to anyone who's feeling suicidal you know what uh we do a lot of cowardly things in our lives. We do a lot of selfish things in our lives. Um, that alone is not the thing to be worried about. You know, don't don't 
worry about, oh, you know, uh, this is a cowardly thing to do, or this is a selfish thing to do. You, you, you are not being necessarily so cowardly or so selfish. Probably you have been fighting this battle for a long, long time to stay alive. And that's been a very brave battle you've been fighting. And you've probably been fighting it, even though you didn't want to keep on going and you're allowed, you know, there are other very good reasons not to do it, but that is not one of them, in my opinion. People, uh, people who never attempt suicide go through their lives making countless cowardly and selfish decisions. Don't you worry about that aspect of the thing. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing I want to say. The, another related thing I want to say is that when David Foster Wallace wrote about this point, he said very helpfully, you know, people talk about... Um, cowardice and selfishness in this context and what they have to understand is that the suicidal person is like a person inside standing inside a burning building and she's asking herself do i want to be die do i want to die be roasted alive by flames or do i want to die by leaping out of the building and she's she she this is how she feels and when she leaps out of the building she's just saying okay i'm choosing the least the less painful death i'm going to die either way i'm either going to die in this terrible misery or i'm going to die it's probably still going to be very painful but not as painful as being roasted alive this is what david foster wallace wrote and i think it's quite helpful um now again i want to say um you have other choices it is not i know that's how you may feel but um there are other choices other than being roasted alive or leaping out of the building. I promise there are other choices. What, what you need to do first and foremost is wait a day, go for a walk, um, breathe, to hold on to the, not, not cling to the thought, but be willing to hold that thought and look at it and not be afraid of it, et cetera. Um, things I've already said. Now, when it comes to this question of a uh, related question of, uh, medical assistance in dying. I've written about this a fair bit. Um, it seems to me, uh, well, Valerius Maximus, when he was traveling through um, ancient France in around 200 AD, I think, uh, came upon the Massalians, this present-day Marseille, and he said they have there a council of, I think, 600, where you can go, and if you wanted to end your life, you could plead your case and explain these are the following reasons. And, you know, he says something, maybe someone's suffering from a terrible illness, or maybe someone's suffering from, a, you know, a terrible defeat from which they will never recover or horrible bankruptcy or whatever it happens to be or grief that they cannot bear or they will may even go when they're at absolute height of their happiness and they think life could never get happier than this so i just want to put it there uh, i want to end it now and for all of these reasons this council would listen to the person who came to them and if they just they thought yeah this person has made a good case then they would provide them the means for a painless death and it seems to me that any enlightened society that has the capacity to do so ought to respect the wishes of the individual in providing assistance so long as the proper safeguards are in place um, to someone who has, can make a good case 
for why um, um, they should have a death without suffering. What 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 would we rather insist? Is it the case that we want to simply insist? Of, for what reason that we want to insist that you must be suffering while you die? It, to, to me, it makes no sense. Um, uh, people should not have to suffer. So um, I, when I talk about this debate, the debate around euthanasia with my students, who obviously they're most of them a long ways from this, but a lot of them have had grandparents die in um, recently and sometimes in circumstances of great suffering. And my students, for them, the issue of euthanasia is just totally non-controversial. You know, they all feel like euthanasia ought to be a right. And um, I think this is because they're bringing a quite fresh mm. and non-judgmental perspective to the question, you know, mm. Um, so whereas we are bringing a lot of complicated moral baggage to the question, a lot of us be, and mostly because we're, we're still dealing with our own, um, Judeo-Christian moral baggage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I firmly agree. I think it's a the future generation, current generation and, 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 and the younger generations are having a, a, a more humanist perspective. Um, yeah less and less of the shadow of god so that's, that's yeah maybe maybe, yeah. maybe better um, yeah bertrand russell yeah. once said that you know most morality is motivated by the pleasure of inflicting cruelty uh on other people the pleasure of the the, the cruelty of um, telling someone else how to do what to do and how to do it mm -hmm. and i think that that's basically right yeah yeah no i would agree Okay, so really quick, uh, I you know I'm sure you could you could riff on this for for hours, and so I, I, I will <laughs> I will I will say uh, that uh, you can talk about it as long as you want. But um, you know, in terms of treatment, um, let me just give the kind of ninety second overview of this. What typically happens with treatment is when someone is is actively suicidal, they are placed in a inpatient. Uh, hospital of sorts. Um, and the primary reason or the stated reason for that is to keep the person safe from themselves and from other people. Um, and so it's mitigation of risk. And until the person is less, I would say, suicidal, and usually there's some type of medication, you know, that's kind of given if, if there's other co-occurring issues. Um, that's the, the reason. And then, yes, to, to get out of the hospital as soon as possible. And typically people can go to a partial hospitalization and then out intensive outpatient and then maybe like a private practice or something. It's kind of the tier system within our broken uh, healthcare, mental health system in the U.S. Um, you've obviously talked about it in the book, uh, and I will agree. I've worked at a handful of inpatient hospitals, and they are not like how they were in the 70s and 60s and 80s. Uh, it's, it's different. Um, it's more kind of ruled by capitalism of sorts and managed care, which is not great. Um, but I guess, what is your feeling, I guess, about inpatient hospitals um, as a way of trying to keep people safe in, this, in a sense? And, you know, if you don't like them based on your experiences, I, <laughs> I totally don't blame you. Um, they're not a fun place to be. Uh, and, and, and there are some good ones out there, but most are not as therapeutic as they probably state they are and they say should be. Um, but I guess optimally, what would you want it to be like, or how would you want it to be in, in a sense of that could be more 
I want to say curative, but more therapeutic or rehabilitative. Yeah. Um, you know, there's an indigenous American tribe. I think it may have been the Mi'kmaq tribe that, um, uh, in a book from about 300 years ago, um, a study was, was, that was being made by some, um, some colonizers. And they said that this members of this tribe, uh, they would have occasionally fall into a despondency so deep that they would try to take their own lives. And that when a person fell into such a despondency, um, they would assign someone to go with that person into the forest and they would go, they'd walk in the forest and the person was encouraged to sing sad songs and um, someone had to stay with them and listen to their sad songs and they'd sing sad songs until until that despondency passed, but they would never leave their side to be sure that they didn't make an attempt. And then they would return to the tribe and that they found that this was an effective method for people who were feeling suicidal. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when people talk about 72 hour holds, 5150 holds, yeah. you know, our modern day equivalent of going into the forest and singing sad songs, um, the, the, we don't do it nearly so humanely, of course, as they did back then, because there isn't someone with you who really cares for you and is willing to truly listen to the songs that you need to sing. Um, I think that, um, Well, when I talked to this friend of mine who's I mentioned who's in the one of the leaders behind the 988 movement and one of the leading suicidologists in the world about this question too, he said, you know, the truth of the matter is, Clancy, that every ordinary person is actually in a much better position to help um a suicidally a person going through a moment of suicidal crisis because um because as you say, our our mental health care system in this country right now is completely broken. And there are so many regulations and so many, so many ways of interfering with whatever kind, what could be a therapeutic and healing process. Um, and, um, and as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, these like layers of inauthenticity that come with kind trying to speak with a mental health professional because of the boxes they have to check and all these kinds of things. You know, I think that um, obviously we need more, we need, as far as the grand social question, we need a lot more money going into um, mental health care in this country. And we have a mental health care crisis in this country, especially among adolescents and um, kids spending you know, 24, 48, 72 hours or longer in an emergency room waiting for a bed in a hospital and then getting the most perfunctory treatment if they get any treatment at all. Um, and the treatment is probably just a psychiatrist assigning some medications that they're hoping will gonna are going to work and they're going to follow up with them within a week or two, again, just to do a med check, you know, and they're never going to actually get any real therapeutic help. Whereas we do have things that do help um, for people out there listening who um, have a teen who's in crisis, dialectical behavioral therapy, look it up. Um, it's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is the most effective we know of with adolescents with su suffering from suicidal ideation. Uh, what we, in my opinion, need is um, people who are willing 
to kind of do the hard work that I imagine you do in your own psychological practice, which is just like really psychologists, probably more than psychiatrists, um, therapists, people who are willing to get to know the people they are treating and to treat them as real whole human beings who are who are probably mostly not dealing mate you know there's nothing wrong with um psychopharmacological interventions when those interventions provide a kind of relief they can be very very helpful but um usually they're kind of like a temporary relief you know and there is a, a much deeper problem that needs to be worked through or set of problems um and uh People need to learn about how to care for themselves, how to develop healthy psychological habits, how to open themselves to conversations that are healing conversations, et cetera, et cetera, and um, have real therapeutic relationships with real caregivers. And I think that is the only way we're going to start to emerge out of um, this pandemic of suicide that we have right now and also the the mental health care pandemic that we have that is seems to just be getting worse and worse is through um real genuine um psychological connections between people that may be occurring in groups or may be occurring one-on-one with truly caring psychological um Psycho- psychologists who've been trained in these kinds of techniques. I'm always charmed by this story about the fellow who directed the um, psychiatric treatment facility at the Mayo Clinic for 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 some years. And a vast majority of his patients, when they arrived, he would the first thing he would have them do is he'd have them read all of Dostoevsky's works. And um, this is the kind of thing, you know. A variation on the on the the that kind of theme is what we need, you know, a much more deeper, a much deeper um, uh, an attempt at least to go much deeper into the psychology of the particular individual human being who is suffering. Um, I, I said it to somebody recently, you know, you you can in some way sadly learn more about the human psychological profile of of people than, you know, from, you know, crime and punishment and Dostoevsky than in most psychology 101 textbooks. That's yeah. not to say that theory isn't good and, and research is not good. it's good to learn those yeah. things, but um yeah, the 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 in terms of the human psyche and capturing the picture of that um fantastic in 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 dostoevsky uh and, yeah and, and other writers as well but he's 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 he was he was special i'll just you say would. i'll just say about um about uh, mental health treatment so yes I, I i have spent hours on here uh beating up my own field um and i'll continue to do that <laughs> uh, um so and that's not to say that you know i'm perfect or i have the way or anything like that but um you know I learn from my clients every day. So, you know, they, 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 they teach me a lot. Um, you know, uh, it's their experience. So, but I will say, um, I do think, I do think I have an answer to this. I mean, this is kind of my hobby horse, so I won't go on the rabbit, uh, trail here, but yes, if, if people are listening and you know yourself or other people know, uh, you know, people that are very, very sick um, in terms of their mental health or with substance abuse or suicidality, it is 100% appropriate to seek mental health treatment, which may be 
absolutely um, inpatient you know for for 72 hours okay um that that's that's not to me i don't see that entirely as is tr- it, it's a type of treatment i mean i don't want to say it's not treatment but really it's trying to mitigate risk and to keep you safe okay the treatment yeah. happens after that really and yeah. as you said yes um um uh, you know um psychotropic medication can obviously be again you know helpful i think it's it's not it's not something that is should be dismissed that you know you can you know rub some herbs together and get something the same thing i mean there's definitely some really great natural ways of 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 trying to use as an adjunctive for sure i would say but sometimes there are people that are genuinely chronically ill or sick uh, mentally or emotionally that do need uh, some some treatment with some medication so i don't want to completely uh, dismiss that, but I will say in terms of the treatment, uh, by, you know, social workers and, and, and counselors and therapists and psychologists, um, the biggest thing I would say for people is, I know this is hard and it's frustrating on the other end of people as trying to seek treatment, but is to find someone you find a good fit with and to find someone that's qualitatively good. It can't just be the letters necessarily after their name, whether it's, you know, the license or the doctorate or whatever. Those things are important for sure. But it really is, does this person have a comfortability sitting with suicidal content in in an honest way? And, and I, I hate to say it, many people in, 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 in training in different um, uh, disciplines, they, they do feel uncomfortable by that. And that's a training issue and that's something that, you know, has to be improved upon. But I think that trying to find people out there that you're very honest and say, look, this is kind of a a presenting issue for me, you know, see what their experience is, get a feel or vibe of how they're, they're able to kind of sit or handle, handle that. Not that they have all the answers, but that there's a comfortability with talking about that in a way that is uh, providing some containment and, and, and is giving some type of, um, way or space to feel comfortable to share those thoughts but to also then say okay how do we navigate through this where 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 that's not going to happen um and that can be hard to find i i I will fully grant people out that is not easy to find um but i would say don't get discouraged uh and when you find that it can be very 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 uh useful and helpful and of course obviously people uh in your life or whatever and your social and familial uh, uh, circle can can many times be helpful. Sometimes it can be difficult too, but I think it can be very good to be around people that are supportive. Okay, so last question here. Um, it's kind of just a general one. Is you know we've talked about it in different points or whatever, but how do you want or how do you think we should create a, a culture and a society where we have honest conversations about suicide, um, but also in a way that's safe and respectful. And, and as I said in the beginning, you know, I don't think people should proclaim these things or just tell anybody they meet at a, at a, at a dinner party. Uh, I definitely don't think people should, should be, I've seen this happen and it makes me super <laughs> squeamish uh, making posts online and stuff. I, I think this is hard stuff. And, and sometimes posting things can reactivate other people and you'll get negative troll comments. And so it's, it's really a dicey place on online. I know other people have found groups that have been very helpful. So it's a, it's a mixed bag of sorts, but for you, I guess, how do we kind of take away the taboo and how do we have, um, 
you know, honest conversations where people can feel safe and, and be able to, to share things without kind of the shame and all of that, where, where it's becoming more of a, a part of a, an experience that people can have and that they should be able to, to share it, you know, respectfully and, and, and healthy ways. Yeah. I, I think that for me, you know, you, um, as you say, the project of finding a good therapist is a project. You have to understand that it is a project that you're probably going to have to go to a few different people before you find someone you're comfortable with. And then you may find after some time with that person, you need to continue the the project of finding the right person. You know, you could get very lucky, but um, normally it's going to take some time and some thought and you change and they change. I think to have these kinds of conversations, um, we like the kinds of conversation you and I are having right now, we, we have to sort of first be willing to, um, engage in the, in the difficult, frightening, um, project of being honest with each other about about how hard in the various ways it is to live our lives. You know, we spend all this time faking, um, pretending that we're doing better than we're doing, um, like keeping up these fronts, thinking that, you know, <laughs> thinking that you have to put on all this sort of postures in order to be liked by people or to be successful or whatever it is. And um, we, what what we actually need to be doing. And I believe that, um, I'm seeing more of this in my students, you know, they have this term I didn't know before called trauma dumping and they get together and they, you know, um, it's when you're going too far with sharing your trauma with someone else, but, uh, trauma, trauma dumping aside, I, um, I think this is a step in the right direction, you know, that they, they're willing to get together and at least share with each other what they're going through. You know, I, I like you, I'm frightened by online spaces. And one of the people I studied in my book who died by suicide, she um, started out as kind of, uh, her name was Jasmine Water. She's a TV writer. And um, she started out thinking that online social media was helping her with her depression and anxiety. And then she came around just to thinking that it was just a total echo chamber and yeah. that she she ultimately kind of blamed it for in, in large part for her for her own death by suicide. Um, so, you know, I worry about those spaces, too, although there are groups out there, you know, Suicides Anonymous is a is a good group. And there are lots of other sort of Zoom groups and 12 step groups. I think it is like, um, I think it's going to work a lot like it has worked with alcoholism and soon will surely be working with um, uh, marijuana addiction in our country and um, other uh, forms of addiction. I think we are making, even though as a, um, as the health industry, as a kind of corporate thing is, it's just a disastrous mess as a culture. I think we're kind of moving in the right direction in a lot of ways of being more and more willing to be more and open and less judgmental about, about these kinds of things. And I think that's what it takes really is a, a collective will towards listening. I, if there's one thing, one thing that, um, you can do to help, 
with this problem, it's learning to try to be a good, deep listener. You know, that is so hard for people because when people are presented with something, let's say, and they're trying to listen, everybody, I know plenty of, 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 of clinicians and professionals that will feel the same way. And, and when I, when I teach, I tell students this, you don't have to do something right. And, and there's sometimes this kind of it, it like, you know, rubs off of sorts where the person that's trying to listen will feel hopeless powerless like i have to do something i have to fix this right i can't just have this person there and 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 i've told people but many times students and other 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 clinicians like sometimes yes but many times they just need to feel heard and that it was okay to share that and that's very hard sometimes for professionals to do much less you know kind of maybe the casual person and and i and i i want to underline that point that you're saying is that yes it can be very difficult sometimes because you feel like I should give advice or I should tell them to do this or, and, and, and there are maybe some spaces for that, but a lot of times it's getting in, in, in that, in that, uh, uh, place with them and saying, yeah, that's a real feeling. That's a real experience. And you don't have to judge it. You don't have to moralize it. That's a real feeling. And that's a real experience. And that's okay to share that. That alone can be very, very helpful for someone hugely helpful yeah hugely helpful and ultimately also hugely helpful for the person who's doing the listening mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh, that's that's one thing i think we can all do and we can all work on and we can all get better at <laughs> listen i i try to get better at it every day <laughs> yeah yeah well it's your it's your business and that's i try right. to get better at it every day too it's hard it, it is, is hard. some 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 days are harder than others like why, yeah. why am i not yeah. getting this today was, you know <laughs> Um, well, the book's called how not to kill, kill yourself, <laughs> excuse me, a portrait of the suicidal mind. Uh, it's out everywhere. Um, this is through Pantheon. Uh, as we've mentioned, I'll mention it in the in, uh, intro as well. You know, 988 is the suicide, uh, hotline. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. And folks should, should call there if, if they're feeling, uh, even remotely, uh, you know, suicidal. Um, is there any place uh, that you want to to have people find you or is there anything else that you want to say about the book or anything like that? Nope. Just, you know, if you're feeling vulnerable, don't I am I'm easy to find online. Uh, shoot me an email and I'll 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 get back to you as quickly as I can. And I'm I'm eager to help because I've been where you're at and uh and uh you know you can get through it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Clancy, this is uh uh, you know, a tough subject, but um, I really feel inspired and and really uh, positive about our conversation. And I think it's a necessary one. And uh, you're you're a true champion of of sharing your experience so vulnerably and uh, with with a lot of vulnerability. And uh, I really really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about about uh, about your experiences and about suicide in general. It's tough stuff, but uh, we need more folks like you. So, so big, big, big thanks. No, thank you so much, Xavier. And thanks for, you know, I'm glad we we laughed a lot through our conversation because I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, uh, we're allowed to laugh at ourselves. You know? That's right. That's absolutely right. All right. Big thanks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>